Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, mental illness, and suicidal ideation. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On January 11th, 1993, a receptionist at the World Health Organization in Geneva, Switzerland, received a strange phone call. A French police officer was on the other end. They asked if a man named Jean-Claude Roman worked there. The receptionist had never heard of him, and a quick lookup proved no one by that name in their system. The police thanked the receptionist for their time and hung up. Later that week, the receptionist turned on the TV at home. There was a news story about a man who killed his wife and set his house ablaze. What a horrible thing for someone to do. As the reporter detailed the man's crime, the receptionist realized the murderer's name sounded awfully familiar. Maybe they knew him from work. Nonsense, they thought. Nobody who worked at the World Health Organization would ever commit something so heinous. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. Jean-Claude Ramond. His story, once again, reminds us that doctors are not immune to mental illness, and blindly trusting them may have some very deadly consequences. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on Jean-Claude Roman. From the 1970s to 1990s, the French conman stole hundreds of thousands from family members and friends, all while pretending to be a doctor. Last week, we detailed how his fictitious life became too hard to hide. In Too Deep, Jean-Claude believed the only way out was murder. This week, we'll follow Jean-Claude's continued killing spree and get a glimpse into what he's up to today. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the early hours of January 9th, 1993, 38-year-old Jean-Claude Roman stood over his wife, Florence. She laid in their bed at home in Ferney-Voltaire, France. Florence didn't move, didn't breathe, because Jean-Claude had just beaten her to death with a rolling pin. He claims to have blacked out during this horrifying attack on his wife. But when he saw her dead body, he put the pieces together. Maybe he thought this was better than her finding out the truth. That he wasn't the esteemed doctor she thought he was. He was actually an unemployed con man. And instead of working at the World Health Organization, he'd been stealing from their extended family. But now... There was no one left to steal from. Jean-Claude was broke and terrified that almost 20 years of lies would come to light. And now, he'd killed his wife. As the sun rose that January morning, Jean-Claude walked into the bathroom in a daze. He washed Florence's blood off of the rolling pin. His heart beat out of his chest as he scrubbed. Harder. Harder. If the rolling pin was clean, then it was like nothing ever happened. He could carry on with his day like normal. Otherwise, his guilt would eat him alive. Perhaps the thought that Florence would never know the truth brought him some peace. But if that's true, the feeling was short-lived. An hour or so later, Jean-Claude heard his kids puttering around the house. Seven-year-old Caroline and five-year-old Antoine had just woken up and were looking for their mother. Jean-Claude's serenity was replaced with dread. They couldn't go looking for her. They'd see what he'd done. Jean-Claude told them that their mother was still sleeping. He poured them each a bowl of cereal and put the three little pigs on the TV. He sat down next to them. By his account, they cuddled for about an hour as they watched cartoons. He could hide his panic from the kids, but not from himself. There was only one way to quell his anxiety. Jean-Claude's actions over the next two days are hard to comprehend. Not only are they filled with unthinkable violence, but just like with Florence's death, he claims to have blacked out at certain points. If we take Jean-Claude at his word, his blackouts were likely due to a state of shock or dissociation. Jean-Claude's demeanor following his wife's brutal death says a lot about his mental state. 
These kinds of blackouts or lapses in memory can happen when someone experiences overwhelming stress or a severely traumatic event. This is known as dissociative amnesia, and assuming Jean-Claude was telling the truth, had no compounding physical or mental conditions, and was sober, this could have been what was going on here. Jean-Claude's extreme calm after the murder could have been a result of this, as dissociative conditions retard mental functions that govern perception, consciousness, and of course, memory. I've treated patients who've had slightly similar waking blackouts, but those cases were predominantly drug-induced. However, in lieu of our story, if Jean-Claude was truly in a dissociative state, there's no telling what he'd do next. Recounting Florence's murder and the events that followed, we're left to fill in the blanks with speculation, as well as accounts from experts such as Emmanuel Carrere, author of The Adversary, a true story of monstrous deception. According to Carrere, Jean-Claude remembers telling his kids he loved them because he knew this would be the last time he saw them alive. Caroline might have sensed his paranoia. She touched her father's arm and thought he was cold. She offered to go upstairs and get his robe. Jean-Claude's stomach sank. If Caroline did that, she would see her mother. He must have realized the kids would find her eventually. Cuddle time was over. Jean-Claude had to continue with his plan. He told Caroline that he wasn't cold. She was hot. Maybe she had a fever. She should go into her room and wait for him to bring her the thermometer. Caroline happily followed her dad's advice. She went up to her room and waited. But Jean-Claude didn't grab the thermometer. As he crept down the hall to his daughter's room, he screwed the silencer into his rifle. We don't know whether the little girl saw her dad holding the gun or how she reacted if she did. We only know that Jean-Claude told her to lay face down with her head underneath her pillow and that she listened. Jean-Claude claims he blacked out at this moment, but by the end of the morning, both his children were dead. He left their bodies in their beds, covered with blankets. After murdering his own kids, it appears that Jean-Claude just went on with his day. Neighbors saw him go to his mailbox. A shop owner sold him a newspaper. By all accounts, Jean-Claude seemed completely normal. But nobody knew that he had a rifle in his trunk as he headed for his parents' house. Jean-Claude claimed that he doesn't remember the 50-mile drive to their home in Clairvaux, France. He remembers his father answering the door, then almost nothing after that. Based on the crime scene, author Emmanuel Carrère proposes that Jean-Claude had lunch with his parents and that after they ate, his father, Aimé, brought Jean-Claude upstairs. There, Jean-Claude fired twice, hitting his father in the back and killing him. Like he did with his wife and children, Jean-Claude covered the body with a blanket. Back downstairs, he killed his mother too. Though he shot her face on, instead of from behind like his dad and children. At some point, he noticed his parents' dog whining. 
Jean-Claude knew how much Caroline loved the dog and thought she should have a playmate in heaven. Jean-Claude let out another bullet. Then he left the house and got back into his car. He wanted to get on the road quick enough to beat the traffic to Paris. It was time for his last dinner date with Corinne. Coming up, Jean-Claude's rampage continues. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1993, Jean-Claude Roman killed his wife, children, and parents. To him, this was better than them finding out he was a conman and a thief. The last person he'd stolen from was his former mistress, Corinne. She had recently given him 900,000 francs so he could set up an investment account for her. Little did she know, Jean-Claude had spent all of her money on himself. For the last few weeks, Corinne had been asking for the money back. Jean-Claude had nothing left to give her, and now that his family was dead, he had nothing left to lose. He headed to Paris, supposedly to bring Corinne to a dinner party. He told her that it was at a well-respected doctor's house and that he wanted to introduce them. But Jean-Claude had other plans for the evening. When he arrived, Corinne immediately asked him about her money. He said he didn't have time to withdraw it from the investment account, but would on Monday. In the meantime, they had to get going. Corinne was angry, but didn't want to dwell on it. She was excited to spend time with other prestigious professionals and disappointed when Jean-Claude announced they were lost. The car circled a forest road, driving aimlessly. Finally, Jean-Claude stopped the car in the middle of the woods. He said he had the doctor's phone number on a piece of paper in his trunk. He got out and rummaged through the trunk, but returned to the passenger side window empty-handed. He told Corinne to get out of the car. He'd found a necklace in the trunk that he wanted to give her. Corinne reluctantly agreed. She got out and went around to the back of the car. Then... Jean-Claude told her to close her eyes. 
suddenly, a foamy substance covered Corrine's face and scorched her eyes. She tried to open them, but that only made the burning worse. Because of this, she couldn't see Jean-Claude setting off a can of tear gas. Then Jean-Claude jabbed a stun wand into Corrine's torso. The electricity paralyzed her against the car. She screamed in pain as she tried to fight back. Corrine begged Jean-Claude to stop and let her live, at least for the sake of her children. Through her stinging tears, Corrine managed to lock eyes with Jean-Claude. It was something his other victims most likely weren't able to do. This snapped Jean-Claude out of it. He stepped away from Corrine and, shockingly, tried to calm her. She began to catch her breath, but her body was still in panic mode. Jean-Claude attacking Corrine with a stun wand and tear gas is horrific. Stun wands are electroshock weapons, which discharge electrical currents. This immobilizes someone because electricity disrupts neural signals that regulate voluntary muscle control. It's also very painful. The tear gas would have caused a burning feeling around Corrine's eyes, nose, and mouth and would have made breathing difficult. Enough tear gas can kill or blind someone via chemical burning or respiratory failure, and a stun wand could cause fatal cardiac complications under the right conditions. It's amazing that Corrine fought back despite the pain. It's also amazing that, apparently, she kept her wits about her. Jean-Claude told her to get back into the car and catch her breath. As she did, she spotted a long, thin cord on the ground. She realized it was just long enough to wrap around her neck. Corrine's chest heaved as Jean-Claude got back into the driver's seat. He too was calming down. Corrine found it odd when he asked her to tell him what just happened. He explained that he'd blacked out. Corrine was exasperated, but still, she retraced everything. Jean-Claude shook his head in disbelief. He told Corrine she must have started a fight and that he needed to protect himself. The normalcy of sitting in the car with Jean-Claude like he hadn't just tried to kill her almost tricked Corrine into believing this. But her mind was stronger than that. As Jean-Claude began to drive her home, she remained terrified that he'd tried to murder her again. As a trained psychologist, she knew she needed to keep him calm. She tried to talk to Jean-Claude like a patient. According to Emmanuel Carrère, once she got Jean-Claude to open up about what he was feeling, he admitted to attacking her, but blamed it on cancer. He claimed the disease was causing lapses in memory and bouts of insanity. Jean-Claude blaming his conduct and forgetfulness on cancer could be believable in another reality. He stated that he had lymphoma, which in rare cases can spread to the brain, possibly leading to memory problems, personality changes, and shifts in behavior. Of course, his cancer was completely fake, so we know he was lying. Corrine likely realized Jean-Claude was lying to her, but feigned sympathy as a way to protect herself. She held her breath as Jean-Claude drove and vented about his illness. Anything else? could set him off again. As he vented, Jean-Claude made her promise not to tell anyone about the attack. 
Corrine said she wouldn't, as long as he'd get her her money by tomorrow. Jean-Claude agreed. When they finally arrived back at her place, Corrine bolted out of the car and sprinted up the walkway to her apartment. Once inside, she latched the lock behind her. But Jean-Claude had more to say. He found a payphone directly across from Corrine's apartment and dialed her number. He could see her in the window as she picked up the phone. Jean-Claude told her, quote, Promise me not to believe it was premeditated. If I'd wanted to kill you, I'd have done it in your apartment, and I'd have killed your girls too. Corrine promised Jean-Claude just to appease him, then hung up the phone. Luckily for her, Jean-Claude left Paris after that. He had to deal with the massacre he'd left at home. The sun was rising when he arrived back at his house. Jean-Claude didn't dare go upstairs where the bodies were. He sat motionless in the living room until 11am when he decided to move his car. If it stayed in the driveway, someone may stop by for a visit. He drove it to a shopping centre parking lot, then walked home. Then he spent the afternoon taping over cassette tapes on his VCR. Jean-Claude may have done this in another dissociated state. He has said that he wasn't sure what he was taping over. It's thought that it was either home movies of his kids or sex tapes he claimed to have made with his wife. Around 3am, he began the final step in his plan. He grabbed a jug of gasoline and poured it over Florence and the children's bodies. Then he doused the upper levels of the house. He put on his pajamas and lit the trails of fuel on fire. He started in the attic and moved to the hallways and stairs. Then Caroline and Antoine's rooms. Then he entered his bedroom where Florence's body lay. He wanted to be by her side one more time. Outside, street cleaners saw the flames from their vehicles. They started banging on the front door and shouted that the fire department was on their way. Jean-Claude ignored them. He watched the smoke from the hall creep into his bedroom. He'd stuffed clothes in the cracks of the door to stop it from filling the room, and he'd taken a dangerous amount of prescription medication to go to sleep. He laid down next to Florence's body and waited for the flames to engulf them. But the smoke burned his eyes and lungs. It was suffocating him. The medication wasn't working fast enough. He got off the bed and ran to the window, gasping for air. The firemen outside heard the window open. They climbed a ladder up to him, but by the time they reached the top, Jean-Claude had slipped into a coma. His coma was likely caused by a combination of the drug overdose and the fire. Sedating medications by default slow heart rate and depress respiration. As the drugs began to take effect, Jean-Claude was also breathing in harmful smoke filled with carbon monoxide, which displaces oxygen in the blood, depriving vital organs. Smoke like this also severely inflames and irritates the large airways that branch into the lungs, inhibiting the flow of oxygen. 
When treating comatose patients, it's paramount to keep their vital signs stable with IV fluids and to carefully monitor keystone organs like the heart, lungs, and kidneys. It's also important to pay close attention to the patient's blood oxygen levels and employ a ventilator if need be. This particular route to a coma would have been very taxing on Jean-Claude's physical well-being. After being brought to the hospital, Jean-Claude remained comatose. The police had to start trying to figure out what happened without his testimony. And their investigation would unearth secrets they couldn't have imagined. Coming up, the police look into Jean-Claude's life of lies. Now, back to the story. In 1993, Jean-Claude Raman incinerated his home in Ferney Voltaire, France. He planned to make it look like his murdered wife and children died in the fire, but instead, firefighters saved Jean-Claude and the crime scene. However, the smoke from the fire, combined with the medication Jean-Claude took, put him into a coma. With Jean-Claude incapacitated, the police needed someone to inform his parents of what happened. No one knew yet that Jean-Claude had killed them as well. It's unclear how, but Jean-Claude's uncle, also named Claude, was assigned to the task. Grief-stricken and nervous, Uncle Claude approached the front door of his brother's house and took a deep breath. Telling his brother and sister-in-law that their daughter-in-law and grandchildren were dead was going to be the most difficult thing he'd ever done. He knocked on the door, but nobody answered. The dog wasn't even barking. Uncle Claude knew something wasn't right, so he broke into the house and found his brother, sister-in-law, and their dog dead in their home. Two days after the murders, Uncle Claude encountered a disturbing scene. The bodies would have been in a decomposition phase of self-digestion, known as autolysis, where enzymes start eating cells from within. This causes the body's skin to appear loose and discolored, and leaking enzymes create foul-smelling gases. Once he got himself together, Uncle Claude called the cops. Meanwhile, the police were already forming their own theory about what happened in the fire. They initially thought it was some sort of freak accident, but the autopsy revealed Florence and the children's fatal head wounds. From this, they determined that the family had died before the fire. The police had to start looking for a killer. This theory was solidified when they answered a call from Uncle Claude, after hearing his description of the elder Roman's house, the police suspected that someone killed Florence and the children, then drove 50 miles to kill Jean-Claude's parents. As the author Emmanuel Carrere explains, they also believed these weren't random killings. They thought someone was getting revenge on Jean-Claude. Authorities contacted one of Jean-Claude's longtime friends, Luc Labmiral the very same friend who Jean-Claude first spouted his cancer lies to. Officers traveled to Luke's office to speak with him. They learned that he had already heard about Florence, Caroline, and Antoine's deaths. The police told him about Jean-Claude's parents, M.A. and Anne-Marie as well. Luke was horrified. How could something so terrible happen to his friend? 
The police asked Luke if Jean-Claude had any enemies. Luke couldn't think of anyone. Everyone loved Jean-Claude. He was a respected doctor with the World Health Organization. Acting on that lead, the officers called the WHO. They spoke with the receptionist who told them that there was no Jean-Claude Roman in their system. Nobody there had heard of him. Still in the room, Luke started to feel like it was all a nightmare. Likely panicked and wanting to help, Luke told the police about Jean-Claude's cancer. The police called many doctors and hospitals, but they found no official record of Jean-Claude's illness. The police left Luke's office without any leads. At this point, they'd likely garnered suspicions toward Jean-Claude, but they needed more telling evidence before they could accuse him of anything. It wouldn't be long before they found it. We don't know exactly how, but investigators located Jean-Claude's car in the parking lot where he'd left it. Officers opened the door and found papers with the WHO logo on it. They found this odd since they knew by now that Jean-Claude didn't work there. Then they found something else. A handwritten note. Authorities read the note and knew instantly that Jean-Claude himself had written it. The note not only asked for forgiveness from his family, friends and Corrine, but it confessed to his double life. And the murders. The police were stunned. Jean-Claude was the man they were looking for. Now, they just needed him to come out of his coma. They didn't have to wait long for this, either. Jean-Claude woke up a few days after the fire. As he came to, police towered over him in the hospital bed. They told him they were going to charge him for murder. Still in a bit of a haze, Jean-Claude defended himself. He claimed that an intruder broke into the house and committed the crimes. He said he watched in horror as the attacker killed his family. Still suspicious, the police shifted gears and questioned him about his career. At this, Jean-Claude clung to his claim that he worked for the WHO. The police tried to get Jean-Claude to admit to the things they already knew for the next seven hours. At the end of his questioning, an exhausted Jean-Claude knew that no matter what he said, the police would challenge it. So, Jean-Claude Roman, the man who feared that his lies would be discovered more than anything else in the world, confessed. He wasn't a doctor. He was just a liar and thief who killed his family. He breathed a sigh of relief when the police handcuffed him and brought him to jail. Around this time, he was quoted as saying, I have never been so free. Life has never been so beautiful. I am a murderer. I'm seen as the lowest possible thing in society, but that's easier to bear than the 20 years of lies that came before. It was as if he felt no remorse. He was just happy that the weight was no longer on his shoulders. This next phase of Jean-Claude's delusion didn't escape authorities. They had him evaluated by psychiatrists as he waited a trial. 
These experts noticed how he spoke of his family with no emotion. He was more concerned with making a good impression. Luke realized this too. After his arrest, Luke received letters from Jean-Claude. They spoke of how he coped with being alone in jail and barely mentioned his family. It's unclear how frequently Luke wrote back, but their correspondence filled Luke with dread. The man he knew was a loving doctor, not a murderer. Luke's family was reeling from the news, and his children became frightened that something so horrible could happen to them too. It wasn't just Jean-Claude's family and friends who were tormented. Corrine was being hounded by the press. The headlines called her a monster's mistress. While they never referred to her by name, this bothered Corrine. Maybe she felt that the press was insinuating she had known she was involved with the killer. It took threats from her lawyer to get the papers to refer to her as a friend instead. Though victim would have been more accurate since she barely escaped Jean-Claude's rampage. It's hard to tell whether Jean-Claude was aware of the torment his actions continued to cause. In jail, he sometimes wept about his murder spree, though the psychiatrists were unable to determine if it was genuine. They wondered if he cried because he knew he was supposed to. The psychiatrist's eventual diagnosis was that Jean-Claude Roman was a narcissist. They believed that his narcissism was a coping mechanism for the depression he dealt with his whole life. He's definitely shown narcissistic and depressive traits. However, I don't think this interpretation of his mental health makes much sense because depression doesn't lead to narcissism. While someone could be afflicted with both conditions, narcissism is unfortunately very difficult to treat. Whereas depression can be mitigated with talk therapy, behavioral changes, and medication, narcissism requires ongoing intensive psychotherapy. Keep in mind, though, just because Jean-Claude had these psychological issues, it didn't give him an out for his crimes. Jean-Claude's narcissism soon became apparent in a new obsession. After his arrest, he went down a self-serving path of spiritual redemption. He condemned himself to live in dedication to his family. He believed that he would one day be happily reunited with them, but only if he lived a true life. However, his psychiatrists point out that, given his history, no one will ever know if he's being honest. Not even Jean-Claude himself. They also note that he does not have access to his own truth, but reconstructs it with the aid of the interpretations held out to him by the psychiatrists, the judge, the media. Even a judge had trouble finding the truth when Jean-Claude was finally brought to trial in 1996. Jean-Claude was assumed honest when he detailed all the lies that put him in front of the court. Missing the medical school exams, his career, the five murders, Jean-Claude went through them all. The judge asked how his fake life went unnoticed for so long. Jean-Claude admitted that he was surprised as well. He didn't seem to understand how deep he was in or the weight of his actions. In court, Jean-Claude said, My flow, to you, my Caroline, my Antoine, my papa, my mama, you know everything. And if anyone can forgive me, it is you. <laughs> 
And yet, my flow, I am sure that with your intelligence, your goodness, your mercy, you could have found it in your heart to pardon me. I promise you, I will try to live as long as God wishes me to. He still spoke as if he believed he was a good person. And this wasn't the only time this came up during the trial. When Jean-Claude's friend Luke took the stand, he knew that the judge thought he was naive to never catch on to Jean-Claude's lies. Luke told the court that it seemed ridiculous in hindsight, but Jean-Claude was seemingly a good man. To Luke, this made the murders even more horrific. The judge agreed. In the summer of 1996, Jean-Claude was found guilty of all five murders. He was sentenced to life in prison to be eligible for parole in 22 years. Jean-Claude was sent to a prison in Villefranche-sur-Saône, France. He was well-liked in jail. Guards would introduce him to rough inmates, hoping that Jean-Claude's calm demeanor would rub off on them. His pacifying personality could be due to Jean-Claude finding religion behind bars. One night, Jean-Claude couldn't sleep. His guilt tormented him in his cell. He looked at a picture of the Holy Face, a painting of Jesus by artist Georges Roux. Then, he was suddenly imbued with the presence of God. He'd been crying in pain, but now his tears were, in his words, the result of an inner fire and of the profound peace that comes from the certainty of being loved. Writer Emmanuel Carrère, who corresponded with the incarcerated Jean-Claude, thought his religious dedication was another way for him to lie to himself. Still, Jean-Claude pursued a righteous path. While incarcerated, Jean-Claude was introduced to a religious group called the Intercessors. The group's goal is to create a continuous prayer in which members are assigned shifts to sit down and pray. That way, no matter what time it is, someone is speaking with the Lord. Jean-Claude chose the extremely late night shifts. He said he was getting back in touch and now he was a better man for it. If he truly was or not, we'll never know. But the prison staff probably believed it. It could have been one of the reasons that they considered releasing Jean-Claude in 2019. After 26 years in jail, Jean-Claude likely had to plead his case in front of a prison parole board. He was no longer a con man that got in over his head. He was a man of God who was atoning for his sins. It would be hard to believe that Jean-Claude didn't lie in some way while requesting parole. Perhaps he didn't believe in God as much as he was letting on. Or maybe he didn't feel guilty anymore. God had freed and forgiven him of that. Nevertheless, the French judicial system listened. And on April 25th, 2019, 65-year-old Jean-Claude was granted parole. He was a free man. He would be electronically monitored in his new home, the Fongombol Abbey Monastery in France. It's unclear what his new life is currently like or if he officially joined the monkhood, but it's likely he's continuing a religious life, one that, in his mind, eases his guilt. When the dust settles, Jean-Claude Ramon's story is a tragic case of mental illness. 
There's a certain probability that his late adopted faith is a coping mechanism to deal with a tremendous guilt. He may even feel that it somehow cancels out the evil he committed. However, given what we know about this man and his calculating nature, I'm inclined to believe that most, if not all, of his religious fervor is an act. While I clearly can't say for sure, my gut tells me it's just another con, and one that unfortunately granted Jean-Claude his freedom. This case also presents the frightening notion of unknowingly getting treatment from an unlicensed doctor. Fortunately, in the U.S., it's very easy now for someone to call or go to their state's medical board website to verify their doctor's license. France now has a similar user-friendly system in place for this kind of vetting. Jean-Claude certainly reminds us to keep our eyes open for quack doctors and to always evaluate a caretaker's credentials. Jean-Claude spent most of his adult life lying to the ones he loved. He feared that they would look down on and reject him if they knew the truth. However, once everything was revealed, he felt freer than ever before. It wasn't his lies or his murders that brought him down. It was the suffering he put himself through. Yet, in his elation, his remaining friends and family were agonized with the truth. They thought they knew a doctor that helped the world. Now they know he was nothing more than a fraud and a killer. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much, Alistair. For more information on Jean-Claude Roman, among the many sources we used, we found The Adversary, a true story of monstrous deception by Emmanuel Carrere, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Brandon Rizzuto, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.